Hi, everybody. Welcome to Disrupt TV today. Um, you're in the green room. We've been talking about NFTs, which Moderna, Moderna versus J&J &J and Pfizer, and more importantly, the Chick-fil-A drive-thru. No, just kidding. Anyways, <laughs> some quick introductions in the back end. We're going to start with Perry, go to Teresa and Raja, Raja and then we're going to go and talk about uh, you know, where are you from, what are you talking about today, and then we'll start the show. So, Perry, go ahead. Hi, I'm Perry Hewitt. I'm the Chief Marketing Officer for Data.org, a checkered career in purpose-led brands, helping organizations sort of pick up their marketing and digital strategy for our high fast-paced environment today. So thrilled to be on and to talk a little bit about data.org, our mission and what we hope to achieve. Hey, thanks a lot. Teresa, where are you from and where are you calling from and what are you gonna be talking about today? Hi, I'm Teresa Guerrero. I am the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer for Publisa Sapient. Uh, for those of you that don't know Publisa Sapient, we are a, di a digital business transformation company that partners with established uh, and large companies to help them reinvent their business for the modern world so they can continue to be relevant. And I think today we're going to have a conversation about the shifts in marketing and how, how the brands stay relevant. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, Raja, where are you calling them from and what are we talking about today? Well, I'm calling from Cincinnati in Ohio, uh, where I'm uh, happily staying at home for the last one year. Uh, and I am the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer of MasterCard and also the President of the company's healthcare business. Uh, and what I would really love to talk about called quantum marketing, uh, which is fairly provocative and it challenges things extremely aggressively. Uh, I have a few bruises on my back, but I'm still standing in So I would love to discuss those. Excellent. Cool. And as we get the streaming started here, uh, we're going to see what's going on and then we're going to start the show. Um, and as everybody knows, uh, the show is brought to you by Robots and Pencils. Thank you for all being on the show. And of course, we're going to start the countdown. Al, please go ahead. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests, your questions using hashtag Disrupt, and we'll do our best to answer them live during the show. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He is the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business and Breaking News. His new book comes out in July titled Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Uh, Ray is a regular television, business, and technology news contributor. You see him weekly on uh, Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, CNBC, Wall Street Journal, and Cheddar. Uh, he's a global sought-after keynote speaker, and in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Vala Afshar, prominent keynote speaker, customer speaker, evangelist, and of course, more importantly, he's on Twitter all the time. Everybody follows his insightful tweets for inspiration. CEOs, CMOs, uh, CIOs, boardroom members, everybody. I keep hearing about Vala's tweet, Vala's tweet. Anyways, more importantly, he's an author himself and, of course, my awesome co-host and co-founder. But it's not about us. It's really about our wonderful guests and this week, we're going to be talking about marketing from all different angles. Who's our first guest, Paula? Yeah, it's an honor and a privilege for us to have Raja, Raja Manar, uh, Chief Marketing Communication Officer at MasterCard. Raja is an accomplished global marketing executive of more than 25 years of experience, the last six of which has been in the role of Chief Marketing Communication Officer for MasterCard and President of the company's healthcare business. Raja is consistently recognized globally as highly innovative and transformational leader in his field. 
Global Marketeer of the Year, awarded by the World Federation of Advertisers, top five world's most influential CMO by Forbes, uh, top 10 world's most innovative CMOs with Business Insider and inductee to the CMO Club Hall of Fame. I, every award you can imagine in this space. Raja has also been recognized as one of Adweek's most tech-savvy CMOs. He recently assumed the honorary role of president of the World Federation of Advertisers. Raja has also been recognized by ANA Educational Foundation as the Marketeer of the Year. At MasterCard, Raja is responsible for successfully leading the company's marketing transformation, which includes deployment of cutting-edge marketing-led business models and core at the core of the company, which we're going to talk about. Interbrand has ranked MasterCard as the fastest growing brand across all industries and categories worldwide in 2019. Raja is the author of an exceptionally great book titled Quantum Marketing, which we're going to spend a majority of the show talking about. You can follow him on Twitter at R-A-J-A-R-A-J-A-M-A-N-N-R. Raja, Raja Manar. Welcome, Raja, to the Shrub TV. Thank you, Vala, and thank you, Ray. It's absolutely an honor and a privilege to be on this show. And delighted to meet both of you for the first time and looking forward to our conversation. We are excited to have you. Given your experience, your death, this new book, you put into play that marketing is facing an existential crisis. Let's start there. Yeah, you know, this is probably the saddest time uh, when I look at marketing today and uh, where we are and what we are in the midst of. So firstly, a lot of surveys that have been done recently have shown that amongst the CEOs, more than 70% of them have expressed little or no confidence either in their CMOs or in their marketing departments to drive business growth. Now, that is not a good situation to be in. Number two, many CMO roles are getting eliminated. And these are not some obscure industrial companies which are hardly doing any classical marketing, so to speak. But these are blue chip packaged goods companies like Johnson & Johnson, for example. Number three, a whole new breed of C-suite executives are coming to drive the growth agenda. You've got chief customer officers, chief revenue officers, uh, and you have got ch uh, uh, chief growth officers. Now, if you take away growth customers and revenue, what else is marketing left with, right? I and know, finally, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, and finally, marketing is being fragmented. If you'll go back to my generation, for example, Philip Kotler, I consider him the father of modern marketing. He talked about four Ps. Today, marketing doesn't handle price. Uh, uh, it absolutely, with most of the companies, it doesn't handle place, which is logistics. It doesn't handle product and packaging. So it barely hangs on to one pillar of marketing, which is promotions, some advertising, some events, and some promotions. So it's got really shrunk in uh, its uh, scope, and it's losing its seat at the uh, CEO's table. And therefore, I said marketing is in an existential crisis. And uh, your point is what's going on, right? I think if uh, very interestingly, till the mid 1990s, marketing was ruling the roost because marketing was all about creating the right story, telling your story in a compelling fashion, connecting to the consumers and influencing them to make their purchase or decision in favor of your brand. It was brilliant. Marketers classically have been right brain thinking but in mid 1990s, with the advent of data analytics and internet, marketing suddenly became tech driven and very data oriented. Both of these are little alien to the classical marketers. And actually most of the technology stacks, most of the data analytics today that we see have not been created or designed by marketers. It's all come out of from those subject matter specialists 
who they think what is relevant and they have created. They took the agenda away from marketers. One. Second, with the advent of Facebook uh, and the social media, as also the mobile phones and mobile devices, this has become even more quantitative, even more technology driven. Mm. And from that perspective, marketers started getting farther and farther from you know, getting a complete hold around the entire ecosystem. And when a CEO is asking a question, because of the intense competition, they are accountable for results. They say, okay, hey, I'm giving you uh, so many million dollars. What are you giving back to me in return, to me as into the company in return? Now, typically I have noticed that many marketers, because they are not data savvy, they are a little bit like deer caught in headlines. So their answers are marketing answers. So my brand awareness has gone up. My net promoter score has gone up. But then those answers destroy immediately your credibility as a marketer. <laughs> because you cannot give a marketing yep. answer to your business question because it looks nope. like you're hiding or you're hiding behind jargon. Or worse, you're doing some fluffy stuff that doesn't impact business. But Come as on, we love vanity metrics, Raja. <laughs> Come again, sorry? We, we love vanity metrics. <laughs> I know, I know, that's true. But it doesn't help the cause, right? Because know, of that, the trust has been eroding for years now. And my worst fear is, we are just about to enter the what I call the fifth paradigm of marketing. Each one of the two, we have gone, we are right now at the edge of the fourth paradigm and we are about to enter the fifth. Each one of these paradigms was ushered in by two technologies at a time. But now there are two dozen new technologies which are mm. coming at us like a deluge. The data proliferation is going to be amazingly high. That if you think that today we are swimming in data, we haven't even seen the beginning mm -hmm. because every single connected device is spewing out so much of data. And also simultaneously consumer privacy concerns and how do you respect the data, the privacy, how do you secure the data? All these issues are coming and marketers actually are in a perilous situation unless they get their heads around. But on the other hand, this is probably the most exciting and inspiring time to be in marketing because data and technology democratize the playing field pretty significantly and companies need marketing to differentiate and to win. So this is the marketer's moment to really seize and win and bring back the gravitas and the glory of the function. That's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, uh, Roger, next week, Time Magazine is hosting a CMO roundtable uh, on purpose, marketing, and the evolving role of brands in society. And uh, the attendees were, giving home were given homework assignments. So I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate uh, to attend this roundtable hosted by Time. And it was a paper written by Jerry Wind, professor of marketing at Wharton School. And in there, he references your work. So part of my homework assignment was to read Roger's thoughts on purpose and marketing. And in there, you said the philosophical framework is that this is the time when we will serve our customers as opposed to sell to them. The role of the CMO is therefore build and nurture the brand for the long term, drive the business growth, and use customer insights to establish the competitive advantage of the firm. Tell us about... Uh, the, how you define quantum marketing, quantum marketing. And by the way, it's a pleasure to get ready for this roundtable by reading your thoughts. So it's pretty, pretty cool that you're now on the show Thank with you. us. Really honored. See, uh, the way I look at quantum marketing is as follows, right? Let's start with physics. Physics is the science with which you try to make sense out of everything around you in the physical world. Newton's laws of gravity or uh, uh, Newton's laws of motion, then laws of gravity and electricity, magnetism. When you understand and get your head around how things work around you, you're able to leverage them and deploy them. Classical physics worked very well for centuries till such time 
when humanity discovered outer space, classical physics totally failed to explain the phenomena there. They just, it just couldn't handle. Same thing when you went inside of atoms, classical physics could not explain. There were a lot of situations where classical physics was failing miserably. That was when quantum uh, physics was born. And that was a completely radically new way of looking at everything. And that today is the basis for a lot of what we do and what physicists rely on to deploy in the real world today. And life is good thereafter. Now, in the same way, when I look at marketing, marketing, classical theories of marketing were all formulated several decades back in a different world. Today's world is completely different from that world. And those old rules and laws and frameworks and theories are simply not workable today. And like I said, we are entering the fifth paradigm where there is going to be even more dramatic change. Mm. And classical marketing will just not work. You need a quantum physics equivalent for marketing, which is, therefore, I said quantum marketing. So that's why I came with this concept. So what is quantum physics to physics is quantum marketing to marketing. And I literally challenged every single theory and framework that we practice today in marketing and put it on its head, saying that this thing doesn't work. Loyalty doesn't work. Uh, advertising does not work. Consumer insights don't work. I mean, I'm making some radical statements, but backed by data and backed by a proper hypothesis. One of the things is marketers misunderstand their mission as to keep on pushing, pushing, pushing and get sales. Now, you need to generate leads for sure. There's no question. You have you cannot dissociate yourself from the business realities day to day. But the scenario right now that we are in, we need to approach marketing very differently. First and foremost, people are sick and tired of the trust deficit around every aspect of our lives whether it is news media, whether it is the politicians, whether it is the marketing, which they feel is very deceptive and cannot be really believed and so on and so forth, people are looking for anchors of trust. So companies have to realize that trust is going to be a huge differentiator. In fact, it's going to be essential to succeed tomorrow. Number two, in order to build trust, other than transparency and good practices and operating with integrity, consumers are looking for companies to do things beyond their own profits. Mm -hmm. So every company pursues profits, not a bad thing by itself. But they're saying don't only be solely profit-minded, also be focused on the society. Now, and that actually engenders trust. So long as you're not trying to do those good things for the society, you're not purpose-washing. You know, oh, today Black Lives Matter is being talked about, so let me hitch on to that. And then yesterday it was, uh, you know, uh, uh, something else that is there happening, healthcare workers. So let me hatch, uh, latch on to that, or small business. No, it's not about following the social trends and latching onto those. You need to have a clarity of purpose and a consistency of commitment. Once you have that, marketing brings that purpose to life. Hmm. That, that's what marketing should be doing Brilliant. on the one hand. And cause marketing should not be confused for purpose-drivenness. Like purpose is like a North Star. And cause marketing is like the roadmap. So the causes that you choose have to be precisely oriented towards your North Star and then keep moving. One last point, if I may say, sure. the example I give my team, and a lot of people have actually sort of beaten me up, saying that, you know, and from outside the company, I'm talking about, <laughs> Raja, this purpose is all hogwash. There is nothing to prove that you need to have a purpose to be successful. I can show you any number of companies which are successful and have zero purpose. Now, here is my point. <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm, I can't think of any, <laughs> but go ahead. <laughs> so if you are talking about, from a business advantage perspective, purpose is making a difference, yes. right? It is 
actually i can see the results in so many cases okay and number one number two more important than that is purpose is about philosophy and the example i give is suppose i'm sitting at this table with a fantastic feast laid out on my table to eat and i'm just about to eat and then along comes a poor thin malnourished child very hungry did not have food and if he is standing in front of me what do i do i said i ignore you and i keep gorging my food or do, will i be a decent human being half decent human being and share some of this with that kid because by giving something to the kid i'm not depriving myself i have got surplus here with me so would you not share would you not help somebody in need to me that is the example if you are the kind of person who wants to ignore that kid and keep eating and keep enjoying your food i don't think you should be in marketing you should not be in business actually you know that's not the ethic with which you have to work <laughs> that's how i will approach it right Brilliant. and Brilliant. Uh, so purpose irrespective of whether it gives you business results or not it is a philosophy that you have to follow to be a good decent human being before the distinction between the distinction between purpose marketing and cause marketing cause being the road map really really smart I, i hope our listeners are taking good notes uh as as a as a former cmo before joining salesforce i should have read uh, quantum marketing it would have helped me extend my tenure as cmo <laughs> go ahead right it wasn't out yet it wasn't out yet how would we know? i know i know, I know. <laughs> but I should have just followed out. his tweet stream i should have followed his podcast and all the other and given the millions of followers that you have got you must tweet about my book <laughs> i you absolutely kind of absolutely absolutely no, but but related to this right i mean the, the notion of trust the notion of that purpose right what you're really talking about there's also a legitimacy deficit that's going on right now absolutely. and and that legitimacy deficit requires that authenticity and and how do you tell that to a ceo and a cfo as you build stronger relationships with them? because you know you have a seat at the table and then the question is it is it the kids table or is it the real parents table so <laughs> that's a good point i'm going to use it somewhere <laughs> but and, and we'll give you the credit but you hit the nail on the head right this is something which requires the buy in from the top of the house if the chairman yes. and yes. or the ceo are not embracing purpose even if you stand on your head the rest of the organization will typically reject it's like organ rejection yeah. oh yeah it's critical right now the key thing is the way i look at it is the cmo has to be the brain trust for all ideologies for creativity for business results and for strategy should be that brain trust for the ceo you need to have a very strong partnership mm-hmm. you know in today cmos are both as i said right brain and left brain you have to be you are the one who is actually connecting the dots between the consumer and the company or the customer in the company so the company if it really survives based on what you do to your consumers marketing should be at the table at the front end center use that opportunity first and foremost you cannot be failing every single month and not delivering your results and then go and talk to your ceo you know what i think we should be purpose driven they say first go and do your job get your results and we will talk so you need to have you need to earn that level of credibility that's very critical nothing gives you credibility than getting results in the good way when you have a few good results with you go to the ceo and say you know what i will continue to give you the results but let's actually graduate to the next level yeah. and this is not only going to assure you today's results but will assure our company a long term and a medium term future and that's a conversation that needs to be had and aligned because i can tell you there is there is a lot of skepticism uh, at this point in time in the world of yeah, business yes. 
And they say, yeah, for annual report, purpose looks good. Or for making some nice politically correct statements, purpose looks good. But that's a missed opportunity, right? Some of the CEOs are easy to be convinced because they themselves are really purpose-oriented and they're looking for some kind of an anchor. And if you are the one who is giving ideas, that's great. And if there are CEOs where the purpose is just not evident and the person cannot embrace that, I think probably you need to look at for a different company yeah. because I think it is very critical. It absolutely is, absolutely. And in your book, you very nicely set the stage in terms of uh, you know, the crisis of confidence in marketing. And you talk about you know, the changing landscape due to technology, mobile and social and changing behavior. You talk about marketeers uh, not being able to credibly connect business outcomes to marketing investments. And then lastly, and I'm, I'm gonna paraphrase, you talk about putting the science into the art and the art into the science of marketing. Let's not debate which you need. Uh, it's oxygen uh, and, and, and food and water. You need both. And you say, but but marketing today needs executives who can straddle uh, two distinct marketing genres, uh, blending the right and left uh, brain capabilities, combining creative sensibilities with command of data and technology. And then you take us on this journey to the fifth paradigm. And you say, you know, in this hyper-connected knowledge sharing economy where brands are expected to create value at the speed of need, you have to depend on these new emerging technologies like, and you list a, a number, but artificial intelligence is what stood out for me in terms of machine learning, deep learning, NLP, and all these uh, you know derivative AI capabilities that's allowing you to not just orchestrate marketing activities, but at some point get to a point where your choreography this motion of the brand being able to understand the journey of the customers and consumers and really finding those moments of truth and in near real time delivering value. Give us advice to CMOs who have to really understand the importance of the science and art. And does that ultimately mean you have to think about reorganizational design and and the type of talent, I mean, does the system thinking need to really focus on the jobs to be done and ignore the current skills you have? Because frankly, the current skills you have may not get you to where you need to be. I, and you are so right, uh, Wala, absolutely, I totally agree with you. See, the key thing is, today, marketing is not just one specialization, but in a real sense, it's almost like a hub that has to connect various fields or various functions in the organization, whether it is technology, whether it is finance, whether it is sales, public relations, and of course, marketing by itself. And most of this is driven by three things. A, technology, B, uh, data, and three, the softer aspects of marketing, which has been doing very well till the second paradigm, which is the psychology, sociology, anthropology, behavioral economics, and all those behavioral sciences. You need all these of course, you need to have design and aesthetics, which I put in this uh, in, in the last bucket. Now, these are very critical. So you have to be like Leonardo da Vinci if you have to really succeed, okay? Who I think Leonardo da Vinci is one of the rarest of the individuals. And if you are a Leonardo da Vinci, you probably might not want to do a marketing job. You might want to go and start your own company. Or you, so then how do you manage this kind of a world, right? So what you need is a team that collectively comes together as a Leonardo da Vinci team. There are people who are very good at artificial intelligence. And since you mentioned that and it stood out to you, I just want to spend a minute on that. I see every single week, at least a couple of presentations that come from vendors. You know, mm -hmm. my solution is powered by artificial intelligence. Now, Ooh, I, artificial intelligence. Artificial, it's, it sort of gives a credibility to them. Somehow it makes it more uh, authentic, more mysterious and more magical. 
I have ontologies. <laughs> I did a course on Coursera using Coursera. I had done a course on artificial intelligence and I studied the damn thing. And I spent hours and hours with the head of artificial intelligence at MasterCard to ask him to teach me. And I went into some good level of depth. So what do I do when the vendor comes in? I ask the vendor, okay, tell me how exactly is it powering? Let's peel the onion. 99% of the cases, they don't know how to peel the onion and go to the next level. Yeah. Oh, we'll call our technical guy. Okay, when the technical guy comes <laughs> and you open it, there is nothing there. It is just sales spiel. Yeah. Now, my worry is marketers need to have at least that level of understanding to be yes. able to ask the right questions to begin with. And if questions are answered, you need to figure out is the answer substantial True. or is it fluff? Right. And you need to be really able to separate the wheat from the chaff. That is critical. So marketers have to educate themselves. Right. And today, and I keep telling this to my team, every weekend I spend five hours educating myself. Now with right. all my hair gone, <laughs> I, at this stage, if I'm spending five hours every single weekend, I think uh, youngsters have to spend a lot more time because their learning <laughs> agility is also much better, right? And they have to really get into it. And as a CMO, for example, you need to get and surround the, surround yourself with the brightest of the talent in each one of these fields. It's critical. Roger, and if you're a small organization, then what do you do? You cannot employ so many people. And that's a question <laughs> which I always, yeah. always get asked. That is the establishment Ra partnerships. Raja, this is brilliant. We could spend amazing. a lot of time with amazing. you. We're going to have to go. I do have one last question. What's your favorite Grater's ice cream before we go? <laughs> I used to have, uh, you know, Grater's ice cream in totality used to be my addiction. But <laughs> the way, unfortunately, unfortunately, about three and a half years back, I became a vegan. So once I became a vegan, I stopped thinking of ice creams, which, by the way, was my most favorite food next only to chocolates. So I'm <laughs> wow. both of those. All right. I'm, but, I'm brown butter bourbon pecan, but wow. I'm just letting you know. We are here with Raja, Raja Manar, CMO MasterCard. You can follow him on Twitter at R-A-J-A-R-A-J-A-M-M-N. Oh, M-N-A-R. So, hey, thanks a lot for being on the show. The yes. Da Vinci of marketing who takes Coursera classes. Wow, what an inspiring <laughs> segment. Thank you, Thank sir. You, folks. Really Thank you. Congratulations Thank you so on an amazing book. Thank, Thank you, sir. Thank you so very much. Much appreciated. Fantastic. Wow. Uh, that, that, was, that was awesome. Uh, you know, I, I, I have imposter syndrome when I'm in front of CMOs because I was only a CMO for three, three years or so. So, these folks have forgotten more about marketing than I know, and that's no exception with our next guest, Teresa Barrera, Global CMO at Publicis Sapient. Uh, Teresa is a transformational leader and an innovator. Currently, she's Chief Marketing Officer uh, and, and, and responsible for creative thinking coupled with 25 years of global B2B marketing expertise, which has helped her break the mold in traditional marketing in technology and service companies. Teresa has reinvigorated uh, Publicis Sapiens brand, repositioning the company to drive profitable growth and becoming a leader in digital business transformation. One of the great partners for Salesforce. I mean, we do amazing work with her company. In fact, under her leadership, marketing influence revenue has more than tripled in the short tenure that she's been with uh, Publicis Sapien. Teresa was formerly CMO at Deloitte Consulting, and she helped drive, <laughs> listen to this way, over $8 billion in revenue. Uh, during her tenure, she transformed the company's approach, realigning marketing to drive growth and become data-driven. Teresa was recently named one of the top 25 women leaders in IT services 2020, and was 2019 recipient, uh, recipient of the uh, Silver Stevie Award for Female Executive of the Year. 
You can follow her on Twitter at T-E-R-E-S-A-B-A-R-R-E-I-R-A. Welcome, Teresa, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. Hey, Teresa, it's so good to have you here. I mean, Pulisys has done some wonderful work, and you've been along that way as well. I mean, what are the big shifts in marketing that you've seen in your career, especially these last 15 months? The way we do B2B marketing has probably definitely changed, and, when, and what was accelerated by COVID, some of those shifts that wouldn't have been able or possible uh, without going into a pandemic. First of all, I want to say I was listening to Raja. I'm, I'm going to get his book after, and I'm listening to him. I'm going like this. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm just like nodding my head, agreeing with everything he said. And, and, it, and it just to add to what he said, he's, he's absolutely right. Marketing has gone through all these paradigm shifts and has really evolved, right? And I, I, I think more than any corporate function. And, and some of the things he said, I totally agree. And, you know, some of these shifts include, like he talked about data, he talked about proliferation of channels personalization, automation. Um, but I actually think the biggest shift that has really had the greatest impact in marketing is the empower of the consumer, which I think in turn is forcing uh, marketing to change all the way they operate. And like he was saying, like we, we can't, we're, we're still doing things the same way we were taught. Like you talked about the four P's. I remember the four P's from uh, business school as well, right? Because and but I think a lot of that inherently and historically, marketing is, been, is a very process-oriented discipline, right? It's a very linear approach. If you, we still refer to the funnel today, and, and when you think about the funnel, it's very process. It goes from an action, you know, awareness, interest, desire down to an action, and assumes that the consumer is going to follow that same linear. Uh, as <laughs> making a purchase, but today that's not the that's not what happens because decisions are not linear. Purchase decisions we don't make them in a very linear fashion anymore. They are much more circle and more continuous. Meaning the consumer, the customer, no longer goes shopping. They are shopping. We're always shopping now, yeah. and and I think like to what Roger was saying, this really forces marketing to stop acting. I use this analogy of an assembly uh, line. So if you think back in the 90s, it was more like an assembly line. Then because of data, we start acting more like a trading room floor where this got made in real time using data. But what I think is going forward, it's going to look more like a, like a science lab where we can experiment with different configurations and we're going to have to learn our operate with, in a constant state of beta where speed and progress become much more important than perfection. And, and to his point, it does change the role of the CMO. And I couldn't agree with him more that has to be focused on purpose. But I also think because, you know, CMOs used to be the custodians of the brand, right? Yeah. And then yeah. they became the, the drivers of growth. And some people still not even there. A lot of organizations, marketing still not accountable for growth, right? But I think that I totally agree with them that that's about purpose. But I also think the opportunity for for CMOs, and I do think that I agree with them. It's an exciting time to be a CMO because the opportunity is also for the CMOs to help um, to help reimagine the company 
and to have yes. reimagine change what is the company the strategy is going to look like so that partnership that he talked about with the ceo it is so important and i could also what he talked about where the cmo is really the chief sort of connector officer that you yes. get to connect all the functions but it is the opportunity right now for a great cmo is not just focus on growth which is really important because you're right growth gives you credibility growth yeah. is going to give you that seat at the table right. and it's going to solidify your function but you got to know going forward you got to think about how do i help reinvent and reimagine what is the future of the company and the business and i think that's the greatest opportunity that's amazing what a great great insights you just shared with us it feels like when i listen to you i hear a whole new set of peas it's about personalization it's about purpose it's about partnerships it's about passion so you know we're we're really talking about a whole new set of maybe peas versus the traditional four tell us about how you're leading your team you know you're 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 talking to us right now from Toronto you lead a you lead a global marketing team especially during the last 13 months in this decentralized digital only world that we've been in how have you changed your leadership philosophy and practice during this time as you really uh brought relevance and vitality to uh publicist sapient as as the CMO and before i answer that um i want to add one more p i think is a really important one which is product product mm. in the sense of product mindset because Great. i believe i use this i i tell my team every day uh product is the new campaign we as not product from a physical product like my company sure. we are a service company sure but you got to adopt that product mindset the which is of a, a continuous evolution as iteration like things are not finished mm. and i think for a lot of that that is like to me the most important piece right now are you move from the campaign era to the product era and i can tell you it's very scary especially for a creative Sure. <laughs> you have to say your design right your design is not finished yeah. Yeah. that's a that's a hard part so i think that's an important piece to, to just add to your collection of pieces there but to go back to your question how am i um uh lead, leading the team you know we are a very distributed uh, uh organization and um so when the pandemic started for us to work in a distributed model was not something that was strange for us because we are already working like that so it was easy to adopt obviously now we're working at home with our children our dogs our pets our our parents so that part was new um but i think for me um what i learned from most from this pandemic is actually biggest lesson is to to live with empathy mm uh yeah that has been the most actually for me the most uh rewarding uh, experience to listen to be open and to share and much be more candid i what i start doing when the pandemic started because to people keep everybody connected every six weeks i meet, i meet with my uh uh with my team so i have nine leaders in my team and they have their team so i meet with each individual leader and their team and we just have a for an hour an open conversation and i think what that had happened uh for me personally helped me to share my even my own personal story with my team you know i i am an immigrant i came uh, I'm, i'm portuguese i emigrated when i was uh, 16 and a half 
And even those conversations made me become much more comfortable speaking about my own personal journey and background. Uh, and I can tell you, previously, I was not as open as comfortable discussing things like my upbringing, my own struggles being an immigrant, and, my, and I'm minority, a minority in the United States. So opening up, giving the others uh, also permission to share. Uh, and I, I got, and what the biggest rewarding part for me is to see the impact that has made in teams, particularly in younger uh, talent uh, and how inspiring that's become for them. Um, I, I tell you, if I, I, I'll share a, a quick story if I can. Sure, please. Uh, yeah, please. I, one of the, I, one of, I, I still meet, I meet with a group of, I, I pick about three young uh, members of the team and we have sort of a coffee chat once a month. And I had a, um, one woman the other day, we were having this conversation and she said, and, and she shared me her story and her story was about how the pandemic and help her become comfortable with the uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And what it did for her, she said, you know, traditionally I was a person that I would sit in meetings and I would be quite quiet. I wouldn't be the person to speak up. I would sit maybe in the back of the room, lean back and don't really share, just to be an observer. But now we are on Zoom and you can't really sit back. Right? <laughs> And you don't get to pick your seat when you're on Zoom. Like Zoom distributes what people say. It actually became a great equalizer because there's no right, there's no level here. We all sitting. Nobody gets the top seat at the table. We all have equal seats. And because you're on there and you're just right, yeah, the camera is on you. You really can't hide. So she said, "I found my voice, being, wow. and also being at home made it more comfortable." And she said, this is the greatest thing for that for me. And this young woman, she's been so vocal. Like, uh, I mean, she presented at the company leadership just a couple of weeks ago. It's something she would never be able to do a year ago. So there's a lot of things that, that as positive that come out of this. That's amazing. Democratizing access to all contributors, including single contributors, young single contributors. That's, 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 you know, that's a great example of a silver lining of, of, of the pandemic. That's, and, and hopefully she's developed those confidence muscles that when we do get back to the new normal and she's next time she is in the office, she's sitting at the head of the table, you know, head held up high with a smile ready to present. So that's awesome. Absolutely. That's Absolutely. Awesome. And I just love those stories. So yes. Amazing. Yeah, I know. And, and I think some of the, those leadership lessons learned is really about helping to find voices or give people voices where they wouldn't have before. So definitely, especially for introverts, I think this has also been hard for people like not only suddenly do have to talk. So helping them and coaching them and guiding them there. But it is interesting, right? We're a year from the pandemic. Um, is there anything you would have done differently knowing what you know now? Well, I think one thing on a personal side, if I knew I was going to still be here in Toronto a year later, I would have moved to Portugal. <laughs> yeah, right. Lisbon, I love one of my favorite cities, by the way. She's going to be on a beach in Kashkai, hanging out in yeah. a stroll, <laughs> enjoying the water. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. That's exactly what I would do. I have a house in a small northern uh, village in Portugal. I would be there. Um, so, so, but on the personal side, I think we learn, like I said, there's a lot of great things to learn from it, from this pandemic. I think the other great thing, uh, I think it forced my team to is innovation. Like so much innovation has come out of this pandemic. Um, 
you know, we were a company. I, I personally never liked events. I'm one of those CMOs that if I never had to go to a, an event, I would never go to an event. <laughs> and events has always been such a big thing for marketeers. So, and you know, and events, to be honest, I always favor, especially the large ones, the large companies with large budgets. Because if you were going to go to CES, you got to get a big space. Otherwise, you get lost yeah. in the crowd. Yeah. Right? So That's if true. you're not going to spend millions of dollars, yeah. right, probably shouldn't even show up. But when the pandemic happened, none of us could do events. So in some ways, a level the playing field. Mm. But right. being having budget didn't really matter that much anymore. We also yeah. equal here. And I think what a force is innovation. So like for my team, one of the things they had to think very quickly. So one thing we did, we actually created this incredible uh, streaming platform. We call it the, the How Channel. It's a streaming platform for short form interactive content. It's all under five minutes. uh, And we literally launched it in 30 days. And when we, this is go back to the product mentality, we have to let go of perfection and progress is more important. So we launched it in 30 days. And when we launched it was only with um, two series and about five episodes. Now we have 12 series, 80 episodes in six months. And we, and part of the amazing thing has done as well, we found raw talent, talent people in the company that are really great on video because it's, it's, everything is on video. And, and, and we also discovered that our clients are actually like more authenticity. Sure. Look at your, your show. You're a fantastic show with amazing guests, mm-hmm. including me and Rajan. Uh, <laughs> but but you, you really, you do, right? And you have a huge following. And, you probably don't spend millions of dollars in setting up this studio. <laughs> We're actually embarrassed to tell you our budget. Yeah, <laughs> but no, it's, yeah it's not even thousands, <laughs> let alone. Yeah, anyway, sorry. <laughs> you know, because, because as you said, we know that the product for us is you. Yes. It's our guests. They're not tuning in to listen to Ray and I, believe you oh, me. Sure it's our guests. It's our guests. But, but it's authentic, right? And it's informal. I actually think that that is important. And people, I think, after a year looking at this, they said the production value is not that important. And I think we learn with our How Channel, we do it all from people's homes as well. And it's been a great success. But again, it forced you. It forced us to do things that probably we wouldn't be comfortable doing because we thought wouldn't be accepted. That's great. That's great. That this is, is my last question to you. And um, my 18-year-old daughter... I just got accepted to Bentley University, a Boston-based Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And she's going to study digital marketing. So she's and, 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 uh, a minor in data and, and, and uh, analytics. What advice would you give to an 18-year-old who loves storytelling, loves connecting in people, who, and believes that marketing can be a very purposeful career? Is there, is there advice as, as an extraordinary uh, accomplished CMO running multi-billion dollar budgets. Um, and I promise you, she's gonna watch the show and, and take notes of your uh, of your advice. First of all, that's an amazing university. So congratulations. Thank you. Uh, Thank I, you. I have a 17 year old as well, and he's um, be going to university uh, next year as well. And, and one of the things I think actually, she can combine marketing or some liberal arts with data with data management, I do actually believe it is the right thing to do because I have a, a practice in my team 
with about 12, 12 data uh, science type uh, uh, folks that do all data analysis and look at the insights. But the hardest part is to find people that can do both. They can look mm. at the data and tell a story. Because as Raj said, that is everywhere. And we can tell whatever stories we want out of data, but what is the story you want to tell? And then most people is the hardest part. So if she can do that, measuring those, it's phenomenal. And so great for her, congratulations. In terms of advice, look, I guess if I look back at my young self, hmm. the advice I would tell her to say, look, um, be yourself. You know, when we work hmm. the work, we, we enter the workforce, we tend sometimes to, I look back at myself, to, to try to fit into a mold and to try mm, to yeah. and to try to fit what their organization wants us to be. And I think sometimes we lose a little bit ourselves. Mm, and I think that we are our best when we bring our best selves to work because those experiences, our backgrounds, that's what makes who we are. So I would say, don't ever give that up. Bring that to you because that's who you are and makes the company better because those things go into the product as well. So sure, that would sure. be my, my advice looking back at sort of what I, from my, when I was young, what, uh, what I wish I did more. You are an awesome storyteller. Wow, thank you. <laughs> that, was, that was great advice. And I will absolutely have her watch this show over dinner tonight. So thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Oh, wonderful. Hey, thanks for being on the show. We're here with Teresa Barrea, uh, global CMO of Pulisus Sapient. And we're going to see her somewhere between Minho and Porta, somewhere in Costa Verde uh, soon. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Show in Portugal next. We will. Oh, yeah. We should oh, wow. do live, live. We should do it live from Portugal on a northern beach. I'm in. <laughs> that would be amazing. That would be amazing. Thank you so much, Tristan. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, Ray. Wow. Okay. So this is what we call the cleanup hitter spot. You know, uh, both uh, our next guest and myself, you know, being Boston. And I'm not sure if Perry's a Red Sox fan, but again, <laughs> this is where we expect a grand slam. And, <laughs> and typically with Perry, that's a, that's, a, that's a sure thing. Our next guest, final guest, Perry Hewitt, Chief Marketing Officer at Data.org. Perry works at the intersection of marketing and digital strategy. In fact, the first time I met Perry is when she was Chief Digital Officer at Harvard many years ago. And I was blown away by her amazing, again, science into art and art into science capabilities. She's passionate about leading high-performing teams to drive sustainable change and impact. Perry's focus is on bringing modern marketing and product practices into mission-driven organizations. Again, we talked at the beginning of the show, importance of purpose and mission and clarity of thought and adding value. And, uh, and of course, my founder says business of businesses to uh, improve the state of the world. And that's exactly what Perry's been doing throughout her career. Perry currently serves as the chief marketing officer for Data.org, a platform for partnership to build field of data science for social impact. Recent engagements include Bloomberg Philanthropies, the Rockefeller Foundation, and USA Facts. Previously, uh, as Harvard University's first Chief Digital Officer, and I believe the first CDO in all of colleges and universities across the U.S., Perry conceived and led digital strategy for marketing, communications, and engagement for the general uh, public, media, and alumni. Perry also held marketing and strategy roles at firms including Ithaca, Crimson Hexagon, now part of Cision, and Razor Fish. <laughs> There's a tie to our last guest. Uh, Perry is a Connect Council member at Glasswing AI Venture Capital, an advisor to the Harvard Business School Digital Initiatives, and a founding member of Marketing Society New York Board. Perry advises students, startups, and cultural institutions. She also writes and speaks on topics, including digital transformation, product management, and women in leadership. A wonderful follow on Twitter at P-E-R-R-Y Hewitt, H-E-W-I-T. 
TT. Welcome, Perry, to the show. Thank you both so much for having me. I think third time's a charm, so it better go well. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, fact, you know, this is episode 229, and I believe you are in our, if I'm not mistaken, very early show. So thank you for helping launch this show. And, you know, at the beginning, we would invite people that we absolutely admired. And as you mentioned, we continue to adopt that practice today. So thank you for coming. Thanks, now episode 47 and episode 135. Wow. I mean, you were in the early days of this. So, but hey, let's talk a little bit about data.org. This thing is pretty awesome. You guys got, um, you know, Rockefeller Center, Rockefeller Foundation and uh, MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth started this. Um, and you guys were putting together some very interesting projects, challenges. So let's start by what that is and how people can get involved. Well, first of all, thanks to the previous guests for writing our tagline. We don't have one, but, you know, I think it's got to be purpose, passion, and data, helping tech overcome a legitimacy deficit and power the social sector. What do you think? Woo-hoo, we're done. Wow. <laughs> Somebody was listening to our previous segments. <laughs> Very productive. Get rid of the agency. Um, what we're really trying to do is to bring, as I said, we're a platform for partnerships to really provide, build the field of data science for the social sector. So as you know, there's a huge gap, right, between what the private sector is able to do with data and what the social sector is able to do. And that gap is throughout different areas. It's in the talent you can hire. It's in the infrastructure that you have. It's in organizational leadership's readiness and understanding of data and data platforms. So what we're trying to do is really build the field with our generous founding partners, other funders, to really help social sector organizations advance and take advantage of data technology. And we're doing it three ways. We're doing it through cases, which is sort of lifting up by showing great examples of what's going well in the field. And we recently had our $10 million inclusive growth and recovery challenge. And those awardees were announced in January of this year. And that's a great example of $10 million in funding and technical assistance for really compelling projects around the globe that are advancing the use of data science in the social sector with tangible impact, stuff you can measure. The second is capacity. How do we think about increasing the talent in the field? That's new talent, upskilling existing talent, and really, as I said, developing leadership to be able to manage these resources. I think uh, uh, Teresa touched on this a little, like how do you work with your data science teams? How do you make sure that it's baked into all that you do? And the final is the commons, right? How do we build common sets of tools Uh, that the whole sector can benefit from. And our first big foray into that is going to be with some pandemic response tools. So watch this space. Awesome. I'm gonna have to take my I'm gonna have to take my son over there to get to work for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> this is pretty wild. So, so you mentioned this uh, the, the inclusive growth and recovery challenge again. Ten million dollars um, uh, funding and technical assistance to I believe eight projects around the globe. These are projects like making data work for women, innovative AI for women's financial inclusion, uh, empowering women entrepreneurs with data science, use of business intelligence for informal workers. One that was interesting to me was uh, your virtual cold chain assistant, mm. uh, where, you know, so India is one of the world's largest food producers, yet 25% to 35% of the food produced is wasted due to lack of proper refrigeration and other supply chain bottlenecks. So only 6% of food produced in India currently goes through a cold chain compared to 60% in order of magnitude more in developed countries. So that's one project that you know I found interesting because I didn't know this massive constraints that food producers have in India. Is there any one of these 
initiatives that spoke to you? Can you, you know, shed some light on, you know, a remarkable project that changed your point of view in terms of not only a, a great need that exists, but a great opportunity for data.org to fund uh, folks that, as late Steve Jobs would say, are putting truly a dent in the universe? Well, as I said, we we're lucky enough to have over 1,200 applications from around the globe. collected. Wow. Eight wow. and the Paul Ramsey Foundation, the spirit of we're a platform for partnerships, the Paul Ramsey Foundation in Australia came in and said, we want to fund a ninth. So they're funding oh. an interesting project in Australia around wage theft and the challenges of wage theft. I think all of them are compelling in their own way. For me, the ability, to, obviously, because I've made a lot of my career around the internet and internet access, the work the University of Chicago is doing for the Center of Data and uh, Computing to really look at the ramifications of the digital divide. I mean, look, this pandemic, I appreciate hearing sort of the lessons learned from the pandemic, but I think what the pandemic has done is really shown the light on the incredible economic disparities, not only in this country, but around the world. And the lack of internet access has so many terrible consequences for families. If you think about kids sitting in McDonald's parking lots trying to do their homework or adults trying to stay connected to their workplaces, um, in many areas, you know, the provider's costs are excessive for the family to be able to afford. So what does that mean for society? And the Center for Data and Computing is actually going to look around at Chicago and say, you know, where is the divide the greatest? How do we map out this landscape to help policymakers and the public make better decisions about what we're going to do to improve Internet access for all? But That's of course, amazing. there are terrific stories around the globe. It's amazing. Ray and I last not last November, but the November before, so 2019 November, we were joined by uh, Sir Tim Berners-Lee and uh, Vince Cerf celebrating with the UN, the 75th anniversary of the UN. And at that point, I think we had just crossed half of humanity accessing the internet. So I think there was still 3.6 or 7 billion people mm -hmm. that had no access to the internet. And this is late 2019. So yeah, when we talk about K-shaped recovery and all this, economic uh, impact of the pandemic, it's easy to lose sight on the fact that there are people in a McDonald's parking lot trying to get wireless access to do their homework right. or work in general. So it's amazing. One of the more hopeful parts of these, you know, challenge wardies is seeing the great use of mobile technology, because as we know, many communities are mobile first. So the idea that like, as you touched on Fundacion Capital, working with Mozambique, where over 90% of workers are in the informal workforce, right? They're showing up every day trying to figure out where the work is, how to do it. The idea that mobile technology, even flip phone technology, would provide people with the insights to understand where there's work. What, what days do you not show up? What days do you show up and bring your cousin, right? How do you really use technology and mobile first technology to advance the livelihoods of the world's poorest? And I think that's a really exciting project as well. That's amazing. You know, Let's talk about the judges. You got some great judges um, for these challenges. I mean, from you know Raj Chetty. I mean, definitely big pioneer. Talking about Vera at the, I think she was at the um, Commission for Africa UN. Um, I mean, there's some great people. Talk about the judges. How you guys brought them on board. You got like Jake Porway. I mean, what an right. all-star cast here. Oh, I take, can't take credit for bringing them on board, but it's an amazing group of judges who really gave a lot of expertise and insight to the project. We also worked with program partner DataKind, and there were more than 400 volunteer judges yep. that did a lot of the nuts and bolts work of sifting through those applications. So it really was an all-star cast, and it was really reassuring to see how many people want to apply their skills to this area. 
which sort of going back to the core message, that's why data.org is important. We want to be that platform, that matchmaking place for people and organizations to come together to apply these data science skills for social impact. Yeah, you know, as long as I've known you, you know, again, you've worked uh, with a lot of mission-led brands. We talked about Harvard uh, and Lincoln Center, Bloomberg Philanthropy, and now data.org. Uh, much like uh, the question I asked Teresa, what advice would you give my 18-year-old daughter or anyone in general, maybe someone, maybe four years from now when she's uh, successfully finished her undergrad <laughs> and, uh, and hopefully going to work and not uh, asking mom and dad to fund grad school? No, I'm joking. I we would do whatever is necessary. But what advice would you give for someone who's looking to work in this area? Um, what type of mindset do they need? What type of skills do they need? And ultimately, how can they find, position themselves to be successful, uh, you know, truly making a difference in terms of working uh, with mission-led uh, brands and, and companies? These organizations, whether it's Harvard University or Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, have been, you know, successful in a traditional model for a really long time. And I think someone coming in looking to do digital transformation, really advance their marketing, help them think differently about data, and the use of data science needs to have a couple of traits. They need to be curious, first of all, to really understand, to want to get under the hood, because I think too often people come in technology first or results first without thinking about the depth and the complexity of the sector. So I think that curiosity paired with humility to really understand you know, what's the expertise that's brought to bear here in order to be successful. Uh, something we talk a lot about at data.org is interdisciplinarity, right? Mm when either side leads, particularly in a social impact organization, you know, when the policymaker says, I've been doing this for 20 years, I don't need to, you know, any te you tech upstarts, yeah, that's not successful, nor is the technology first approach where you come in and say, okay, here's my solution, you know, here's the hammer, right? You know, this is, this is what we need to apply in order to advance you. So I think that collaborative, and as Teresa was saying, that product mindset, right? Thinking about how do we work together on this iteratively and together and combine these different teams to be able to advance the sector. Um, and I do think increasingly these organizations are eager for the potential, the opportunity of data to better understand their customers, better advance their product, although some might recoil at the use of that word. <laughs> um, and if you can bring that rigor with you, while respecting the core expertise. I remember at Harvard visiting with tenured faculty who are just amazing people and the best of the best. And sometimes, you know, faculty administration can be tense, but you know, just go and read, read their latest paper, read the abstract, listen to a lecture, show up. And that puts you so far ahead being able to engage, you know, could I understand the full abstract? Not always, <laughs> but to really to be able to engage and really show a lot of respect for the core in order to help them advance for the era. I remember when you were at Harvard, uh, you know, you had a team, but then there was the, you know, the traditional IT team, mm -hmm. which was, I'm going to guess, a hundred times the size of your group. And yet you had such a seat at the table. You were driving the biggest transformations at Harvard and you, know, you really had the ear and the respect of, 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 of the senior leadership. So it just, you know, it was a reminder to me that, um, you know, when you're doing purposeful work and you drive outcomes and you show curiosity and humility and a bias towards getting things done, uh, you really can earn a seat at the table. I mean, at the time, I was managing a large organization, but I was in awe 
of how much gravitas and uh, influence you had with a small team, uh, which I thought was amazing. Which is a credit to you. Sorry, Ray, that was just commentary. On my <laughs> no, <part>. it's great. <laughs> you know, I mean, look, this is interesting to see how we're taking tools like data science, um, looking at how mm -hmm. it promotes inclusivity. Um, it's almost like you're creating a brand new field of digital humanities here. So, and and it's something that's uh, re really important. Uh, we see that across the board. Um, how are you taking advantage, of course, of of, of you know? publicizing that data, making it available for people to use and reuse, so. So I think what we're really focused on is the partnerships, bringing the mm -hmm. best of the private sector and the best of the social sector together to generate the results. So I don't know that we're gonna own all the data sets. I'd much rather think of us as a catalog of catalogs. So, you know, part of my remit is thinking about the product strategy. We have this incredible domain, which is now used for, you know, sort of a light marketing site. What's the opportunity to really make that a digital commons and a platform for partnerships. Does that include matchmaking capabilities? Does that include pointers to the best data sets? I mean, what we really wanna do is think about what are the tools that empower the sector? And again, as you know, my esteemed colleagues mentioned before, that's not about getting five smart people sitting in a room thinking about that. That's gonna be learned through engaging with our community. What delivers the most value to the social impact sector and to our strong private sector partners who want to be part of a purpose-led future. Oh, and on, okay. on a private sector part, can you give us a what's a common persona that you yeah, engage with? Good, so. Is it the chief marketing officer? Is it the chief philanthropic officer? Like who, who, who represents uh, most commonly represents the private sector when they partner with data.org? I mean, it can be uh, corporate social responsibility, but it can also okay. be you know uh, uh, the data and you know technology team really looking to part of it is a retention play, right? To think about people sure. want their jobs to have meaning. Right. Absolutely. So being able to engage and apply, you know, we're uh -huh. going to do an announcement with one large organization that's given a lot of credits um, for cloud hosting, you know, to not for profit organizations. So the idea of the CTO social responsibility, it's definitely not marketing, really looking to say, what are the ways we can deliver value to the broader community? What are the ways we can spread our expertise around? And part of the beauty of being a neutral platform, right, is that yeah. you pull in philanthropy. And you can pull in private sector, but we're a neutral platform for partnerships. So that's where these people can interact in a way that might not be possible in other settings. Terrific. Wow, this is Very great. Powerful. Hey, Perry, thank you so much for being here. Perry Hewitt, Chief Marketing Officer, data.org. You can follow him on Twitter at P-E-R-R-Y-H-E-W-I-T-T, three-time shown at Disrupt TV. Thanks for being here again. <laughs> thank you, Perry. Take care, gentlemen. First ballot Hall of Fame. First ballot Hall of Fame, Disrupt TV inductee. Holy, amazing. three incredible marketers, three important viewpoints all at once, Vala. This is crazy. This was a, this was a one-hour masterclass on marketing. Um, and uh, it's, uh, you know, again, uh, I wish I knew these people when I was a CMO. I would have been much better CMO <laughs> if I would have served my company in a much greater capacity. It's funny. You think you know a lot until you learn a little. And uh, it's uh, uh, the quantum computing book is a must read. Uh, highly recommend. And, uh, and just Roger, Teresa, Perry, all three incredible. You know, again, the reason why I love this hour, Ray, because our guests expand my mind. And, um, and it's just a privilege to be able to, um, to have that opportunity. And next week, episode 230, by the way, uh, in the green room, I think I mentioned, we just conducted our 700th interview. Uh, Raja was our 700th interview. So we've done 700, 701, and 702. It took five years for Ray and I to cross that mark. So the next one is 800, hopefully, towards the end of this year. Um, uh, Celia, 
Uh, first shake your CMO variant, uh, Mikita Mikado, CEO of Panda Doc, and John Furrier, co-founder CEO of Silicon Angle, are our three guests for episode 230 next Friday. Uh, so, Ray, your your uh, closing remarks on what again was a masterclass on on marketing. I don't know, man. We should just issue continuing education credits right now. Two credits. Two credits. You get two credits anywhere. This is, <laughs> this is super action-packed. No, wonderful marketers. Um, learning more about B2B, B2C, seeing where the shifts are. I think the five Ps were amazing. Uh, but more importantly, I mean, thank you for our audience uh, for sharing with us. And thank you to our speakers for sharing with them. Um, this is really what Disrupt TV is about. And, uh, you know, great CEOs, great startups, great authors, great CMOs, great minds, great chief digital officers, um, and of course, great investors and VCs. So lots of great stuff going on here. So thank you everyone for being here. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, almost every Friday. So we'll see you here. Thanks. Thanks. Cheers.